even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We'll end our reading here, and join me. Let's ask God's blessing tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful peace that you do give to us. And Father, we thank you that in both of our services today, we've been nourished uh, with reminders of that. And thank you that the peace of God that passes all understanding keeps our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus and all of the storms of life. We realize that they come to us in many forms, but they do come. And so we're grateful and thankful that you're with us. And in fact, grateful that you even call yourself the God of peace. And just pray, Father, you will bless us tonight. Give us further uh, help and strength and encouragement from your word that we might be better Christians, Lord. I think that is our burden. We, we just desire to know more of how we can be more like Jesus and that we can uh, truly live in such a way as we sang about earlier that someone might see Jesus in us. And so I pray you'll bless now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, you see the title there tonight, How Churches Implode, but I want to tell you a little story behind this message. This doesn't happen to me very often, but once in a while, and uh, I will tell you, I think there's only one time that I have actually sat down and prepared a message and not used it. There's one that's sitting in my desk drawer, buried down under some papers that I prepared, I think, maybe for two Easter's ago. And somehow, when I got to going along with the thing and looking at the thing, I just felt led in a different direction and sat down and prepared a, another message in the same week for the Easter service. And for some reason, I've just never felt inclined to come back to that message. This time as Easter rolled around, I remembered that. And I decided, well, I'm going to look at that. Maybe this is the time when God wanted that and not the other time. But <laughs> you know what? I just didn't feel led to bring the message this Easter. But here's a little tale of how we got the message tonight. I had a message, you may recall, leading up to these services, just uh, looking for things that God might lay upon my heart to help us prepare uh, for the re revival meetings with Will, Will Galkin. And I had the message, Hindering Revival, and then uh, God laid on my heart a second message to that, Hindering Revival Part 2. So that actually is the original title to this message. But here's what happened. I had it scheduled for Sunday evening, which is when I brought the other one on a Sunday evening. I had it scheduled for Sunday evening, April 8th, only to look at my calendar after I, had, after I had prepared it and realized that, well, you dummy, we've got the Bob Jones drama team that night. And so I didn't get to bring that message. And then when the next Sunday morning rolled around, I really felt that there was something else that God wanted me to bring. And uh, so I had that message about seeking the Lord, seeking my face. Tonight I'd like to bring you that message because I think really the message fits whether we're talking about a lead up to revival or we're just talking in general terms. You may recall that in that first message, um, hindering revival, I asked a simple question. How can, we, how can we have revival if Christians don't talk to each other? And if you think about it, reconciliation is one of those elementary and foundational Christian responsibilities that we have. Even on the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember when Jesus was talking about this and he said, I'll, I'll just paraphrase this in language that brings it up to date with where we are. You're on your way to church and you remember that your brother has ought against you and Jesus said, leave your gift right there before the altar. First go settle it with your brother, then come offer your gift. 
Isn't that amazing that Jesus would tell us that being rightly related to each other is so important that we could be in the way, on the way to church. We could be contemplating our worship with God and realize that we had something that we needed to fix with another brother or sister in Christ. And that becomes so important to us and to God that we leave that there and we are reconciled to our brother or sister. That's really an important thing in the family of God. There's a question that I want to ask as kind of a companion to that, maybe the other side of the coin. How can we have revival if Christians don't talk to each other? And the companion question is, how can we have revival if all Christians do is talk about each other? And that's really important for us, as I say, whether we're thinking about leading up to revival or whether we're thinking about any time in our Christian experience or the title tonight, How Churches Implode. Don't you just have a burden in your heart. Don't you just wince when you hear some story about a church that's just sort of come apart at the seams just because folks couldn't get along, just because folks couldn't follow foundational and elementary principles of being rightly related together as the children of God. And somehow there was a split or somehow there, I'll tell you folks, um, I, I, don't, I can't go into a lot of background but I think it was one of the reasons that when we took that trip to Honduras and we went to the church that Ruth kind of calls her church of the two, and our hearts were just so knit to those people because they had recently gone through something like this. And it's not a story that I really can tell you tonight, but they had. They had gone through a situation like this. They had someone within the church, and, and that person, for whatever reason, was unwilling to settle his differences with other people there, and importantly with, with the leadership of the church, was unwilling to do that, and left the church. And instead of being honest with people and telling them that he really had some issues in his own life, he sort of cast it off on the leadership of the church as if somehow it were, it were their problem and uh, took a bunch of people with him out of that church. And then you got there and you, you saw some of those people and you saw how real they seemed to be and how genuine they seemed to be and how they reached out and came to people that were strangers, really, to them and were accepting of us and wanting to talk to us even though the language barrier was there to some extent with a lot of us. And there, was a couple, there were a couple of men in the church. I, I think of Adu in particular. He's kind of the, the one deacon that they have, and he, he, he's the song leader. And he, he would come up to me at different times, and, and I'd get about... I'd get about three words of what he was saying and figure out maybe the drift of some of it and then I'd lose it and I just would I just kind of would be you know kind of like a sanctified but don't doesn't your heart just wince when you see that kind of thing what a poor advertisement that is for Christianity when churches just seem to come apart at the seams when churches just seem to implode Paul gives us a description of this in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 15. Look at this verse again with me because he says this, but if ye bite and devour one another. My question was, how can we have revival if Christians, if all they want to do is talk about each other? But he says, if you bite and devour one another, and then he gives the, the conclusion of that trajectory, if it is unchecked, he says this in verse number 15, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. In other words, the whole thing just comes crashing down. Now, I'm no demolition expert, but I want to use that imagery in the message tonight, how churches implode. And so 
I have three points tonight, but they're all going to be taken from the image in our minds as if you and I were watching or if you, were, you or I were actually on a demolition crew. So let's think about this for just a moment. Let's say that a city wants to take down a stadium and they want to build a new one. That, that, that's actually not a far-fetched illustration. That definitely happens. And so they reach out to a, a crew. They reach out to a company that has expertise in this matter of demolition. And so what they will do is they will implode the building. Many times that's exactly the plan that's followed. Why do they not explode the building? Well, there's obvious reasons for that. They want the thing to come down with the least amount of danger to other people. They don't want steel. They don't want wood. They don't want glass, plastic, or other things flying out in all sorts of directions and harming people. No, they just want to strategically plant explosives in such a way that when those explosives are triggered, the building just comes down. And Perhaps you've seen pictures of this before. It's kind of interesting to watch. And so how churches implode, I want us to follow this imagery. And the first thought that we're going to look at tonight is planting the explosives. So in many demolitions, and again, I don't portray myself as an expert in this, but it's a helpful image to follow. But in many demolitions, you have explosives placed in such a way as to destroy <clears throat> the central support of the building and that creates an implosion. So I look at this building and I determine, okay, what are the critical points of support? If I were to destroy those, the building would come down. And then they strategically plant explosives in those places. And a designer is at work here. That's really the point that I want you to, to see in this first thought. A designer is at work here, someone who really knows this, someone who is able to go and evaluate the building and figure out where the support places are and where you would put these explosives if you want to see the building come down when you trigger them. And beloved, it doesn't take very much for us to figure out that when these types of things happen in a church, there's a designer at work there too. And that certainly isn't the Lord, but it is Satan who knows how to sow strife and discord in such a way that churches can come apart at the seams if it's not un unchecked. Paul says, if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Think about this also. For a church to survive an outward attack is one thing. An inward attack is oftentimes more deadly. Now, if you think about this for a minute, I want to give you something that is a scenario that I suspect would get us all up in arms tonight. Now, let's say that tomorrow morning in the mail... Or let, better yet, let's make it Friday so that it's close to Sunday. And in, in the week upcoming, let's say in Friday's mail, I receive a letter here at the church, and it's from the local taxing authorities. And the local taxing authorities say to Calvary Independent Baptist Church, Dear Pastor Coleman, uh, we wish to inform you that beginning such and such a date, we are going to, beginning taxing, we're going to begin taxing all of the property that the church has except for the actual sanctuary where you meet to worship. That's not like anything you've read about or heard in different instances. Yeah, in some places they even try to tax the parking lot. So let's suppose that such a thing happens and I come to church on Sunday. I get this letter on Friday. I come to church on Sunday and I read you this letter. I suspect that in a, a heartbeat, every one of us would rally to the cause of defending our church and defending its tax-exempt status in the sense that 
you know, it's a little difficult for people to come here and worship without the parking lot. And that activity center that we use, well, we don't just go over there and shoot hoops all the time. No, we use it for purposes that advance the mission of our church and Christian education. And even our athletic fields, if you think about it, are are used constantly by Calvary Christian Academy and by our Vacation Bible School and other ministries to further the mission of our church. So that would immediately unite us. We would deem that to be an attack from without, and we would be for all of a sudden, we would just be of one accord that we need to deal with this as a church and do the best we can to possibly fight this off. That's something that oftentimes a church recognizes right away as something that represents the onslaughts of Satan, but something inside, like the fellow who went out and sowed tares in the field, the person who puts leaven in the lump, that's kind of an insidious thing that The device or the design is to attack from within. There's somebody who knows how to do that very well, is there not? Satan's been doing that for years and years and years, and so he's the designer. How does this fit with the Galatians? Well, I want you to see how we might liken this to planting the explosives because there were two groups within that church. Look at chapter 5 and verse 6. You'll get a hint of this. He says in verse 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but but faith which worketh by love. Circumcision, uncircumcision. Turn over to chapter 6 and and verse 15. Let's see if we don't see that again. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Well, when Paul was talking about the circumcision, you know who he was talking about? When Paul was talking about the uncircumcision, you know who he was talking about? And this relates very well to the situation in the churches of Galatia because when Paul went to those places, when he went to Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derbe, these churches that we read about in Acts chapter 13 and 14, these places that Paul went and planted churches, they ended up being comprised of two groups of people, did they not? They ended up being comprised of Gentiles and they end up who, be, who had trusted Christ as Savior, but who came out of a totally idolatrous and pagan background. But on the other hand, you had Jews who came from a God-fearing background and an Old Testament background. And so in those churches, there were two groups, and they had very different backgrounds. They had very different interests. They had very different sensitivities. They had very different things that might be offensive to them, very different things that they might be sensitive about. Let's see this. If you don't mind, just keep a marker here, and we'll look at Acts chapter 13 for just a moment. I'd like you to see this before we leave this point in the book of Acts so that we kind of we're actually at the point. We're actually seeing this in the Bible as well as from those couple of verses in Galatians. So in the book of Acts, chapter 13, here's now Paul, and he's at Antioch. He's at the city of Antioch in uh, the province of Galatia. And so um, here he comes on the missionary journey, and in Acts chapter 13, verse 42, look at this. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, so he went there to minister, What comes prior to this is quite a sermon that he delivers in the synagogue. It says, The Gentiles sought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. See the two groups within the church. Then we move over to chapter 14 and verse 1. Look at it again. 
and, he came, and it came to pass in Iconium, so he went to the next place, Iconium, that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude both of Jews and also of Greeks believed. So, in a sense, the explosives are planted because all it takes now, really, is just the right issue, just the right spark, just the right match, so to speak, to get these people kind of rubbing each other wrong, chafing each other, some issue that would come up between them that Satan could use to divide and magnify them. Now let's look at the second thought. Now, so if the designer is successful in planting the explosives, and really, folks, what I've just described to you, all churches are like that, are they not? I mean, we're not all of the same background here tonight. We have a lot in common, but... We come from different walks of life in many cases, different backgrounds, different interests. We're not all alike. It's part of the genius of the body of Christ. So in what I've described so far, this isn't anything that should really rock our boat. This isn't anything that should really surprise us. It's just that we have to realize that this is something that Satan can capitalize on if we're not careful. He says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. So the guy goes around and he plants the explosives, but at this point, no harm, no foul. I mean, the explosives aren't going anywhere. They aren't doing anything unless we take the next step, which is to arm the explosives. So many times, plastic explosives are used in demolition. So let's say that someone is a demolition expert and he goes around, he's identified now these places of structural support. And he goes around with a substance that looks for all the world to you like Play-Doh. Maybe not the color you're thinking of Play-Doh because C4 is white. Or Semtex or something like this. And he's gone around and he's planted these plastic explosives and but now you need something to make them go off because you're not just going to walk up to the thing and go with your finger, you know, like you flick somebody, somebody's ear. It's not going to go off. But you put a detonator in this thing and then you find some type of a way to trigger that detonator. And, and I'm sure we've all read about roadside explosive devices, improvised explosive devices, this type of thing. And now you've got that explosive device planted there. You've got that detonator in it you just need some way to complete that circuit, and that thing's going to go boom. Sometimes that's done with a cell phone. Now, <laughs> somebody that's a professional demolition expert isn't going to do it that way, but and you've read about this, I'm sure, in many of these cases. Something to complete that circuit, that electrical charge is going to go to that detonator, and this thing is going to go boom. So how does that happen, and how do we liken that next step to what happens if we're not careful with Galatians 5.15? Well, in Galatia, this happened with the advent of a group of people that we today, we call them the Judaizers. And what did they do? Well, they did two things. First of all, they attacked Paul. And how did they attack Paul? Paul was the one who had brought the gospel to these people. So you would certainly think that their initial loyalties would have been to him because he and Barnabas were the ones who brought the gospel to them. But now do you see how insidious Satan can sometimes be by coming in and finding some way to 
just eat away at the foundations of people's trust and confidence in Paul. So what did the Judaizers do? Well, their theme was adding or mixing law and grace. How do we see this in the book? Let's look at it now and see it, because it's important for us to know in a biblical sense what legalism really is. So turn back to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 7, and I just want to show you four or five verses in the book, and all you have to do is move with me in the book. We'll go back to the beginning, and Paul says this. He says, well, verse 6, we'll read for the context. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Oh, so Paul, Paul was the one who brought the gospel to them. Now these Judaizers have come in. What do they do? What adding law or works to grace, mixing works and grace, which is, Paul says in verse 7, not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. These were the Judaizers, these people who were troubling them. But do you notice that the way that they tried to come in the door by, was by attacking Paul? It was as if they were trying to say, well, you know, this Paul guy, he's okay as far as he goes, but he left out this important component to the gospel. He hasn't told you that you need to be circumcised and follow Moses. But you have to. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. This is not isolated, what we see in chapter 1. It permeates the book. He says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ had evidently been set forth crucified among you? So Paul knew the gospel that he preached. He declared that it was the one and only gospel, that there was no other. But people came in and tried to add works to grace, tried to mix law and grace, and in the process tried to subvert Paul in the eyes of those to whom he had brought the gospel. Chapter 5, verse 2, look there, we just uh, maybe go a page over, and here it says, but hold I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And then we drop down in that same chapter to verse 7, you did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? Well, it was the Judaizers. Chapter 6, verse 12, notice there, He says, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So what really was accomplished by the Judaizers? Well, there was a voice from without. Voices from without. Do you know sometimes that happens to us, I think, in our, our, our Christian experience. Dave was mentioning in the Sunday school class here this morning that he was dividing his comments into positive friends and negative friends. And I think under the negative friends, he mentioned, you know, some people over the years are giving you the wrong advice. It's true. Sometimes that happens, and sometimes we're influenced. And he gave the example of Jonadab in the Old Testament. That's a great example to give in that respect. That He led Amnon astray gave him the wrong advice. It was kind of a voice from without, as it were. And so now this happens. These Judaizers come in, but now it is compounded when there is added to the voice from without a voice from within. So what happened next? Well, Peter came along when he was at the church, and on a visit he succumbed to the pressure of the Judaizers. How did this happen? We'll look back in chapter 2 of Galatians, and Paul tells us about this. He says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Wow, really? I mean, it's one thing when you've got the Judaizers who come in from without, and they try to diminish Paul and uh, take away from Paul's uh, stature 
in the eyes of the people to whom he brought the gospel. But then now you have Peter, who would have been on the inside of things, but he succumbs to this pressure. And Paul tells us then in verse number uh, 12, For before that certain came from James, these were the Judaizers, he did eat with Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled, that is, played the hypocrite, likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Folks, do you see how this happens? I mean, nothing's wrong with the church of Galatia that they had people with different backgrounds. Nothing's wrong with the church of Galatia that they had Jewish people with Jewish backgrounds and sensitivities and people that were Gentiles who may not have had the same sensitivities. But then all of a sudden now you have someone seeking to arm the explosives, something to set these two groups against one another within the church. And you can see a designer's plan at work, how churches implode. And so first of all comes the diminishing of Paul, the voices from without, from the Judaizers. Then you have Peter on the inside who sort of succumbs to this and falls, uh, falls to the pressure of these Judaizers. Well, was Peter really wrong in this? He sure was. Because let's go back, for example, in our mind to the book of Acts chapter 10. And do you remember what happens there? How, first of all, Peter is living in the house of a man by the name of Simon. Does anybody remember what his occupation was? He was a tanner. Well, obviously, Peter must have gotten over some of his sensitivities if he was staying in the house of a man that was a tanner. A tanner. But then what happens is, while he's there... He goes up to the top of the house one day and he has a vision. You remember a great sheet comes down and it's filled with all sorts of living creatures which many of them to a Jew would have been unclean. And the voice comes to Peter and says, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. And Peter says, Not so, Lord. Did did you ever think about how those words really don't go together? Not so, Lord. It's kind of interesting. Go back and read that sometimes. Just every time I read that, I think to myself, okay, that does not comport, but how many times do we do that? How many times do I do that? And this happens three times, so you get the impression that three seems to work the charm in the life of Peter because he denied the Lord three times. Jesus came back to him and said, Simon, do you love me three times? And the sheet vision comes down three times, so apparently that worked the charm with him. And he finally gets the message and he says, God has shown me that I shouldn't call anything common. What God has cleansed, I shouldn't call that common or unclean. And he gets the impression that what God is doing, and all of a sudden, these guys come knock at the door. And he goes down and there's these couple guys and they say, you know, this Cornelius over here has been instructed by God to call you to come over. Now, normally a Jew would have a problem with that. But Peter has just gotten this information from God that, no, you know what? I shouldn't call anything common or unclean that God has cleansed. And Peter gets, the, gets it, and he goes, and he all of a sudden he walks into this house. There's like a, a whole room full of people. Cornelius, and he's brought all these people in because God has told him, you get this guy Peter in here, he's going to tell you words how to be saved. <laughs> and, and, and Peter walks in there, and he sees that, and he says, wow, I, I guess God really has shown me what and he preaches the gospel to them. Well, see, that would have offended Jewish sensibilities. It certainly offended the sensibilities of the Judaizers. But Peter got the message. But now all of a sudden, he's there in the churches of Galatia. He's long since understood. He's the guy who turns the key to open the 
the door of the church to the Gentiles, but now he succumbs to this pressure, and wow, I mean, it's now they've got Peter that they can call on their side. Now they've got, say, see Peter. Now you've got a voice from within lending weight to the bad ideas and to the ideas that have come from without, and the first thing you know, this thing can get ugly. Folks, this is a classic strategy on Satan's part. You might say this is a pincer strategy. You got one force coming this way, the voices from without. You got another force coming this way, the voices from within. And it's right out of Satan's playbook. And if you don't believe that, let me read you. When Paul called the elders of the church from Ephesus to Miletus and delivered that message to them, he knew he wouldn't see those people again. And he had a tremendous burden for them. He called them together, and among the many things he said to them in Acts chapter 20, he said this beginning verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. This is what he told those elders who were the pastors at that place. He said, you take heed to yourself. You take heed to your responsibility as an overseer. You take heed to your responsibility as a shepherd to feed the flock. And he said, here's one of the things you want as an overseer. You better be aware of this. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. That's from without. That's the first part of the pincer movement. Also of your own selves. That's the other part. That's the voices from within. Also of your own selves, he says, shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Well, you can talk about planting the explosives, but you arm the explosives. All you need is just the right thing to get people upset with one another. Paul describes the implosion. Look at our verse again. He says, but if ye bite and devour one another. Boy, that's graphic language. You think about this. To bite, to bite is kind of a a very strong word that's used here. Um, But it's used in a figurative sense because you might use it as of an animal who would uh, bite and tear something. But it's used figuratively here for... um, that which is hurtful, wounding the soul, hurting and wounding reproaches. And he uses this in the present tense. So he says, what this really boils down to in the verse, he's he's seeing a problem that's happening right on the spot. And he says, but if ye are biting one another, and what does that lead to if it's unchecked? And he says, devour, bite and devour one another, which is katastheo, to eat. It just simply means to eat, but when you put the compound on the front of it, the, the kata on the front of it, it becomes intensive. It's also used in the present tense. So he, he's, he's seeing an issue that's going on in the church, and he says, you know what? If you're wounding one another, if you're hurting one another, and you're devouring one another, And then he sees the logical outcome of that if it's not checked, it's implosion. He says, take heed that ye be not consumed. But now he switches to aorist tense, which means here's the end game. Here's what happens. Here's the end game if those things aren't checked. Take heed, he says, that ye be not consumed one of another. 
What does it mean to consume? Well, in this case, it's the implosion. The building comes down because it means to destroy. Let me give you a context out of Luke chapter 9. Do you you remember when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, you know, it was like this. They said to Jesus, you know, we're we're pretty offended. I'm just going to kind of give you a vernacular here. You know, we're pretty offended because we went into the cities of the Samaritans and they wouldn't receive us. They were upset about that, and they came to Jesus. They're supposed to be out. Jesus sent these messengers before him, and they, they come back, and they say, we went to, into a village of the Samaritans to make ready, and they did not receive him, that is Jesus, because his face was set as if he was going to Jerusalem. So James and John, when they saw this, they come to the Lord, and they say, wilt thou command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? This is our word, consume. This is what happens. This is, the, this is the end result. This is the implosion. I was kind of interested in a little story that I came across that I thought would be helpful in the message tonight at this point. It's the story of a king. He, he is said to have possessed a magnificent ring. This ring was an opal ring, and uh, when the light shined on it, there were, it reflected many different colors. It was a beautiful ring. But the true power of the ring, it was said, was in the fact that it made a person beloved by God and others. And so for many generations, the, ki- the ring had been handed down from the parent always to the favorite child, until it finally came into the possession of a king. And the king had three children, all of whom he equally favored. He didn't know what to do, because heretofore the ring had always been given to the fav- favorite child. And so he went out, and he had two more rings made that looked exactly like the other ring, two that were identical in appearance appearance to the original ring, and he gave one to each of his children so that each of them would believe they had the original ring. But instead of it bringing harmony, instead the three rings brought conflict because each child then believed that they possessed the true ring and therefore the right to inherit the throne And the first thing you know, the tension escalated between them when the rings were examined, but the differences between them couldn't be determined. They quarreled. And the quarrel finally became so great that they went to a judge to settle the dispute. The judge listened to each child explain his case. When the time for judgment came, they all listened with great interest to see what the judge had determined. And here's what the judge said. I have been asked to decide which of these three rings is the original the judge began. As the original ring made its wearer beloved of God and people, I can only conclude that none of you have the original ring. For your rings have brought hatred and strife between you. None of you is loved by the other, so I must conclude that the original ring perished with your father and that all three of you possessed counterfeits. Or it may be that your father was weary of the tyranny of a single ring and made duplicates which he gave you So let each of you prove his belief in his ring by conducting yourselves in a manner that befits those beloved of God and people. Kind of convicting, isn't it, really, when we think about it? Hindering revival. How can we have revival if all we do is talk about each other? Especially when Jesus made it clear, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples when you have love one for another. 
So we come to the final thing tonight, and that would be diffusing the explosives because we don't want to go there, right? We don't want to see that. You, don't, you hate to see that in any church. We don't want to see that in our church. We don't want to see that in any church. And so how do we disarm these explosives? Well, he tells us right here, if we have eyes to see, I, I really find this challenging. I'll, I'll tell you, this, this, this message ends with a tremendous challenge, but thank God it also ends with encouragement. And let me get to that now, because if we notice in verse number 13 and 14, before we get to verse 15, we find out what the real Christian mandate really is. This is, this is rock-solid acid test Christianity. This is how you can really figure where you are in these things. He says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But look at these next words, but by love serve one another. Wow, that's easy to say and hard to do, isn't it? By love serve one another. But can you really think of a greater description of discipleship? Can you, rater, can you really think of a better, can I think of a better description of what the Christian mandate is that I have in my relationship to you? Just ask yourself that question. Can you really think of a better description of what my mandate is to you and yours is to me as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, but by love serve one another? You can't improve on that because that's the Christian mandate. He says in the next verse, this proves it. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Folks, you know, we don't need seminars. Really, it's, it's, it's all there. It's just the stuff we've heard from the beginning. We just need to live it out in our lives and accept the mandate that God gives to us. But I'll tell you something, I can't do that. Can you? Really? Can I live that out? Not in my own strength. Can you? No, you can't. Because you know what human nature is has already been described for us. If ye bite and devour one another. That's what comes naturally to us to do. So I can't really live out this Christian mandate and neither can you without God's help. It's kind of humbling to be reminded of that. But you and I cannot really live out that Christian mandate without God's help. And aren't you encouraged by reading verse 16? This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There it is right there, folks. God never asks us to do anything that He doesn't empower us to do. God gives us a mandate that's impossible to live out in our own strength which is why we constantly need to be on our face. We constantly need to be seeking God's grace to operate in our hearts so that we're walking by the Spirit because without the power of the Spirit, you can't live this out. But with the power of the Spirit, you can. God supplies the power to obey the mandate. When we read down a little bit further, what do we find out the fruit of the Spirit is? Look at verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, and what's the next word, is love. Someone has said that really the fruit of the Spirit is love. All the other things just work out of that. You know, there's a lot of truth to that. So if the power of the Spirit is operating in our lives, what does it produce? It produces this love that we need to live out the Christian mandate. The works of the flesh, he says, are manifest, which are these. I want you just to look and see how the opposites are true. So we look down in, in the verse there. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. We get past some of these moral failures like adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness. And look at the next verse. 
idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. Wow, can't can't have that. Can't have that in my heart. Can't have that in my life. But is it? Look at the next word. It says hatred, and after that, variance. Well, variance is contentions. The next word, so we look down a little bit further, variance, emulations. Do we know what emulations? Jealousies, wrath, strife, seditions. Strife is selfish, selfish ambitions, and seditions are dissensions. And if you think about this for a few moments, and if I think about it for a few minutes, you know, these things are mutually exclusive. They're absolute opposites. The fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh are absolute opposites. And left to myself, what do I have? The works of the flesh. And left to myself, do I have the power to obey this mandate? No, but by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has given me the instruction that I need for my life to keep me from going down this pathway. One day a teacher asked her students to list the names of every other student in the class. She to think about this for a few minutes and just take yourself back to your school days. So the teacher said, take out two sheets of paper and on the, the sheet of paper write down the name of everybody in the class. Leave a, a space there so you've got space under it. And so everybody got their papers out and wrote down the names of their classmate. And then she told them this. She said, now, think of the nicest thing that you could say about each of your other classmates and write it down. This is a true story. So that took the rest of the class, and they all sat down, and they looked at the names of their classmates, and they thought about what was the nicest thing they could think about that person, what was the nicest thing they could say about that person, and they wrote it down teacher collected the papers then the teacher sat down over the weekend on Saturday and wrote down on a different piece of paper the name of each student so now I've got ever how many students in the class and I've got at the top of ever how many sheets of paper that takes the name of this student then the teacher copied down on that sheet of paper everything nice that all the other classmates had said about the name at the top of that paper are you following me now so the kids have been asked, okay, write down the names of your fellow classmates, then write down the nicest thing. The teacher takes the papers home, makes out a paper for each individual name, and copies from the students' papers all those nice things that were said about each of the individuals. On Monday, she went back to the classroom and she gave each student his or her list. So if my name's at the top of the paper, now I've got a paper that lists every nice thing that my classmates had to say about me. Before long, the entire class was smiling. You could hear people say, really? Other people, I never knew that I meant anything to anyone. Others, I didn't know others liked me so much. There were comments like that. Well, no one ever really mentioned the papers in the class again, and the teacher, she never really knew if they discussed them after class with their parents or what really happened to the papers. The exercise had accomplished the purpose and the students were happy with themselves and one another and that particular group of students moved on. But several years later, one of them was serving in Vietnam and was killed. And his teacher, this same lady, attended the funeral of that special student of hers. Church was packed packed with the man's friends. One by one, 
Those that loved him walked past the coffin for a last time, and the teacher was the last person to do so. And she was standing there. One of the soldiers who had acted as a pallbearer came up to her, and she said, were you, and the, t- the soldier said to the teacher, were you Mark's math teacher? She said, yes. And then he said, you know, Mark talked about you a lot. Well, after the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates went together to a luncheon, and His father and mother were there, obviously waiting to speak to the teacher. They said, we want to show you something. And the father took out of his his wallet, out of his pocket. He said, they found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. Opening the billfold, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper That had obviously been taped, folded, and refolded many times. The teacher knew without looking at the papers what they were, that they were the ones on which she had listed all the good things each of Mark's classmates had to say about him. The father said, thank you so much for doing that. Mark's mother said, as you can see, he treasured it. All of his former classmates started to gather around Charlie smiled rather sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in the top drawer of my desk at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck asked me to put his in our wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. Then Vicki, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook and took out her wallet and showed her worn, frazzled list to the group. I carry this with me all the time, at all times, Vicky said, and without batting an eyelash, she continued, I think we all saved our lists. That's when the teacher finally sat down and cried. The person telling the story concludes with this simple application. Tell those you love why you appreciate them while you can. I meant to bring my phone with me here to the platform, and it's just not my normal practice, so I forgot to do it. But I wanted to tell you, I was wasn't even thinking about this message, really. What even thinking about that story, because usually all my thoughts in the Sunday morning are on getting ready for the Sunday morning and I turned my attention back to Sunday evening in the afternoon. And I sat down at the breakfast table, and it's just kind of my custom. Um, I turned on the computer, and I was just glancing at the news just to see if there was anything that had developed. And it just seems like sometimes the news is so nasty. You know what I mean? And And I open this thing up, and I see this deal about this press club thing, and this woman that had made vulgar comments under the guise of being a a comedian about the president, and then I saw how this woman had derided the press secretary and all this stuff, and I said, I don't need that. I just don't need that. They just, every time you turn on the news, it's just filled with this kind of backbiting and devouring all the time, and it's not just one side of the aisle, it's the other side of the aisle, too. I said, I don't need that, and I, so I didn't even really read further in the story. Then all of a sudden I glanced down and I saw this opinion article 
and it caught my attention because the title of it was I couldn't believe these were my father's final words to me. Well, I noticed it was an opinion article, but just something about that, just it really caught my attention. I couldn't believe these were my father's final words to me. So I started reading the article. And he was just talking about the fact that his, all through his life, his father constantly affirmed the value of his family to them and what he meant, what they meant to him. And in bold, you have seen how the article sometimes, in bold relief, they had taken one of the things he had to say and just said it in bold relief. And this is what it says. It just, I mean, I, it about knocked me out of my seat, really. When I saw this, it said, text someone right now. and tell them what they mean to you. Give someone a call. Tell them you're grateful for them. And tell them why, even if it feels awkward. Speak a blessing over those whom you love. And I looked at that, and it said, text someone right now. Well, I could do that. Who would I text? Well, there's a lot of people I could text. But it's kind of my custom on Sunday mornings that I pray for different preachers. And so I just sent two texts. I said the same thing to both people. I sent one to Pastor Paul. and one to Pastor Steve Von Pokard. Well, I text those guys off and on. Every Easter, I always text them, just like I do to my kids. The Lord is risen, and every Easter, I always get back within moments. The Lord is risen indeed. And I didn't really expect answers from them right away. I mean, I understand for a preacher what it is on Sunday morning, and I also understand about an hour's time difference. But it wasn't too terribly long. I was off doing something else. I heard the phone cluck. And I saw their texts. And one of them started off and it just said, that is so kind. And I thought about this later on as I was thinking about tonight. What I'm telling you now. For all the law is fulfilled, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So you can't be doing one while you're doing the other. You can't be biting and devouring one another. You can't be talking about other people. You can't be doing one while you're at the same time doing the other. And there it is. I can't think of a better description of what my mandate is as a Christian except those words, but by love serve one another. But sometimes that's not what goes on in our churches, is it? But then I find the power in verse number 16, and I'm grateful to God. Grateful to God that he doesn't give us any mandates, that he doesn't give us the power to obey.
One night in a church service, there was a young woman, and she felt God tugging at her heart. She responded to the call to accept Jesus as her personal Savior. The young woman had a pretty rough past. She'd been involved in alcohol. She'd been in drugs. She'd been even involved in prostitution. But when she accepted Christ as her Savior, the change was very evident. She became a faithful member of the church. It wasn't very long until this faithful young woman caught the eye of the pastor's son. And more than just his eye, also his heart. And the relationship grew and soon they become engaged and had plans to be married. That's when the problem started. Because the designer plants the explosives and then looks for just the right trigger point. Just the right time and way to detonate them. You see, about half the church didn't think that a woman with her past was suitable for the pastor's son. And church began to argue and fight about the matter. And they decided they'd have a meeting. So at the meeting, people made their arguments. The tensions rose. Tempers flared. The meeting was getting completely out of hand. The young woman became so very, very upset about all the things that were being brought up about her past. And she began to cry and as she began to cry, the pastor's son stood to speak. This is what he said. My fiance's past is not what's on trial here. What you are questioning is the ability of the blood of Jesus to wash away sin. Today, you have put the blood of Jesus on trial. Does it wash away sin or not? Soon enough, the whole church began to weep as they realized what they were doing. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the way to forgiveness with God, and it's the way to forgiveness with each other. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.